John. Shane Gardner, what's up, man? Not much. How you doing? You ready to throw down? I'm ready to throw down. What up, y'all? That is Shane Gardner, and he's back to give us a rundown on regional anesthesia. Shane and I recently recorded a show on personal finance in which he unpacked five key steps to achieving financial independence. If you haven't checked that out, it is completely and totally and absolutely worth your time. Today, Shane is going to give us a bit of a 10,000-foot view of regional anesthesia. We talk about the fellowship programs available for CRNAs, the CRNA board certification exam in non-surgical pain management, and emerging trends in the field. We also touch on how to navigate building a block program and get surgeon buy-in, and tips for gaining the experience you need in regional. Whether you're currently an SRNA who's looking to graduate with a strong foundation of skills and knowledge, or a CRNA who's looking to get back into slinging the ultrasound probe and making regional a bigger part of your practice and the value you can bring as an anesthesia provider. Shane Garner's been ripping it as a nurse anesthetist up at Rippin Medical Center in Rippin, Wisconsin. (laughs) I couldn't help myself, Shane. He graduated from Roslyn Franklin University's nurse anesthesia program in 2012 and recently graduated from the University of South Florida's Advanced Pain Management Fellowship. He's passionate about acute and chronic pain management through use of ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia and opioid-free multimodal analgesia. He's in the process of developing a chronic pain management practice in Wisconsin. Shane is also adjunct faculty at the University of Alabama at Birmingham's Nurse Anesthesia Program and enjoys lecturing around the country for organizations like Twin Oaks Anesthesia and Cornerstone Anesthesia Conferences. I got one last thing for you before we get to the show. I hope all of you are well and are finding ways to rejuvenate yourself and stay the course during this crazy pandemic. This episode was recorded in April of 2020 when so much of our future seems uncertain and our present is weighted by the challenges of shelter-in-place orders and economy on life support and the constant risk of exposure to COVID-19. If you're listening to this, you're either a healthcare provider on the front lines or my mom. (laughs) Shout out to Gail, who always listens from the corner window. If you're an anesthesia provider, know that the work that you do is incredibly important and your communities count on you. Every day you show up to work, you have the chance to come through for your patients, keeping them safe, comfortable, and at ease during what are often the most vulnerable moments of their lives. Keep up the good work. And with that... Let's get to the show. Well, Shane Gardner, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast to talk about regional anesthesia. I'm super stoked to chat about this with you. I know it's a big part of your practice. I was wondering on that note, if you would start off just to to describe a little bit about the path you've taken to incorporate regional anesthesia into your regular clinical practice and some of the training that you've pursued. Yeah, John, thanks for having me. Uh, so I, I originally became passionate about regional anesthesia. One of my clinical rotations when I was in school was a three-month rotation. I got to work with a group of CRNAs that did everything possible under regional anesthesia between spinals, epidurals, peripheral nerve blocks, putting catheters in. And that's where I actually was fortunate enough to take my, my first job with that group out of school. And um, from there, it was just continuing to educate myself, keep up to date on um, you know, new techniques, integrating them into my practice. And so currently I live in the same area, but I, I work at a, a different small critical access hospital 
doing a wide variety of regional anesthesia techniques, uh, mostly for general surgery and orthopedic cases. Yeah, that's great. You recently completed the Advanced Pain Management Fellowship for CRNAs at the University of South Florida. Would you walk us through just a little bit in terms of what that program is like? How long is the program? What's the cost? What does it teach you? What can folks get out of it? Yeah, so uh, University of South Florida is one of two programs like this for current CRNAs to pursue it's a fellowship in chronic pain management education. So South Florida, great program director, John May. Uh, it's uh, online portion. Uh, most of it can be done online except for the clinical portion in the lab, but an online portion is over two semesters. You cover assessment, psychology of pain, pain pathophysiology, pharmacology, and then interventional procedures. And so at the end of this, there's a, a three-day cadaver lab on-site in Tampa, Florida, um, where you, you're able to work with um, fluoro and experienced uh, CRNAs doing these injections on cadavers and, and just talking about assessment and, and wrapping up the course. And um, and then there's a, a three-week clinical residency that includes hands-on training. Um, and, and there's about 25 clinical sites or more throughout the country to get this experience. And so you're working one-on-one -on -one with the CRNAs that are doing pain management, able to um, assess these patients, do the injections, and learn as much as you can and integrate everything you learn through the online portion in the whole, in the whole course. So um, a little different than um, acute pain management, but it's this program is really geared towards CRNAs that want to practice that chronic pain management and, and ideally pursue the NSPM board certification, which stands for non-surgical pain management. Uh, and that's an exam that was developed in the last few years and is able to give this uh, CRNAs doing chronic pain management a little bit more maybe national recognition um, between other groups and with insurance um, by having this board certification, just like we do for anesthesia. Um, and great program. I think the biggest thing about it is pain's a very complex process, especially chronic pain. Gave me a great appreciation for that. Um, and I was able to get a, you know, a strong hands-on education on how to treat pain with, with non-opioid therapies. Um, and another advantage is, the, the CRNAs that I worked with out in New Hampshire, Frank Valenti and Greg Aperliano, uh, were just fantastic to work with, have stayed on as, as mentors with me, and have really helped me um, start to, uh, in an attempt to form a chronic pain practice at my own, uh, my own facility. A um, couple, couple other things about the program, um, people always want to know about cost. Uh, the program costs around $12,000. Uh, and as I said, there's clinical sites all around the country. So people are going to most likely have to travel some, but um, with 25 sites, they shouldn't have to travel too much. But sometimes there's some costs then with travel and, and staying at these sites and, and working that schedule of how you're going to go to these sites around your, your normal time at your job. Yeah. So a uh, lot of great info there on this. So this is a one-year program. Is that correct at University of South Florida? Yeah, correct. So when I did it, um, we, we started in fall semester and then we finished in the spring and then into the spring and summer, that's when you'll do your, uh, your clinical residency and then you need some letters of recommendation, um, some other documentation, and then you're able to sit for that board exam. That board exam 
currently happens in June and December. Okay. Uh, and that's one of those that it, it's a computerized uh, test, just like the, the, um, the attorneys would sit for the, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not computer adaptive at this point. Um, but yeah, it was, um, about 150 questions. And like I said, the biggest thing with that, there's a lot of CRNAs that are practicing chronic pain that don't have that. Um, and the biggest thing is just is insurance tries to, you know, deny CRNAs doing chronic pain management. This is just one of those things between the fellowship and the board certification that it not only provides a good education, but it kind of helps standardize some of that to give us a little bit more, um, recognition, um, like I said, potentially with other groups and insurance companies. Yeah, that's great. That's great. In the, uh, the non-surgical pain management examination that that's offered through the NBCRNA, is that correct? Just like the, that's correct. Just yep. like the NCE for your CRNA credential. Exactly. Yeah. And you said there were two programs that are offering pain management fellowships. Uh, what's the other program? TCU is the other one. Yeah. And what, what took you to South Florida? I'm sure you probably looked into both. Yeah, I knew, um, I knew some of the CRNAs that had connections with, um, with South Florida. Um, and so they got me in touch with the program director Yeah, and, um, I was a little bit kind of last minute on this and they had a, a spot that opened up. And so I jumped on that. There you um, go. But yeah, it was the ability to, you know, do this mainly online. Um, and, and then, but still be able to get the hands on, um, clinical residency yeah and then lastly you said that there's a three-week clinical portion where you're traveling around the country is that three contiguous weeks can you break that up over time how, how does that look yeah i my understanding is most people are doing it all at once but i think there's ability to break it up um i'm, I'm not certain on okay um question uh, the, for south florida the, then yeah good a good question for south florida i know some things have changed in the last year with the are continuously changing with the the curriculum and even with more and more clinical sites coming on board. Yeah, yeah. Can you sound off on the fellowship overall, though? I mean, you so you took the fellowship and you took the board exam. Um, how do you feel about your practice now after having gone through both of those things? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great start. Um, you know, just like with going through anesthesia school, you do a certain amount of cases, you come out, you know, you everyone goes in a different type of practice. With this, there's you know, a three-week clinical residency is really just scratching the surface at the hands-on portion. And that's why it's important to have mentors or either work with someone at your facility that it can help you with this. Start small, work up. There's just like with anything that we do. There's a wide range of injections and um, the skill and, and safety and techniques that go into them. So there's a big difference between an S doing an SI joint injection versus doing a a cervical epidural. And so a lot of people will integrate certain things in their practice. They get more experience. They get into more advanced techniques um, between fluoroscopy and ultrasound. Um, so it's, it's a great experience, but it, it, I feel like it's just the start of my pain management education. So I'm at, at this point trying to get the um, privileges at my facility to, to start a pain practice. Yeah, that's great. You also teach for Twin Oaks Anesthesia. So it's a private company that offers um, ultrasound workshops and regional anesthesia. Can you tell us a little bit about what they do? Yes, I've, I've been working um, with, with Jonathan Klein and his team at six years. And most of these courses are, they're all ultrasound guided. 
regional anesthesia courses looking at peripheral nerve blocks. There's also some point of care ultrasound, spinal epidural workshops, but um, really kind of the bread and butter at this point is CRNAs, SRNAs. They want to, everyone wants to know how to do regional anesthesia, peripheral nerve blocks, use that ultrasound machine. So most of these are Saturday, Sunday courses. Um, You've got interactive didactic content, but then also hands-on scanning stations with, with live models um, and you know, going to universities, hospitals for customized courses. A lot of times they're just that nice vacation destinations over by Disney World, um, other places that people like to travel to get out of their house. Um, and, and then there's certain other courses a couple times a year that are offered that have cadaver lab attached uh to the course that you can utilize these techniques to actually drive some needles on cadavers. Uh, And really the best part to me about this is that all the faculty for these peripheral nerve block courses is they're all CRNA. So it's a fantastic way to network with people, um, get small group ultrasound instruction and and develop techniques that you can take back to your practice and and use the next day. And um, it's having that all CRNA environment, I think is, is a really nice um, to learn from CRNAs and, and just to, to keep some of the politics out of it and as we're all in this together. Yeah, that's awesome. Are you aware of other private groups that are offering similar coursework? Yeah, uh, Maverick's another company, uh, and they have some similar courses also utilizing the uh, cadavers. Um, so there's a couple of, you know, all CRNA-owned companies that have really been flourishing. This regional anesthesia has really taken off. Um, this has given CRNAs the opportunity to, um, to, to utilize these companies and, and to grow the CRNA community doing regional anesthesia. There's been some other um, organizations out there, um, like this is uh, American Society of Regional Anesthesia, um, ASRA. They don't really want to recognize CRNAs as experts in regional anesthesia. And so Twin Oaks, Maverick, different companies like that have done a lot to promote regional anesthesia within the CRNA community. Yeah, that's awesome. What do you think some of the emerging trends right now are in regional anesthesia in terms of techniques and blocks that people are exploring and developing? Yeah, the the scene of regional anesthesia, I just feel like it's really, really exploded over the last few years. Uh, You have a a wide availability of, of quality ultrasound machines now that are uh, you know, most facilities have an ultrasound machine. Even people have some like the butterf- butterfly IQ, like the handheld probes that stick into your phone or your iPad. So more and more people have ultrasound. And, you know, it's it's really the the standard of care now when doing peripheral nerve blocks. And so as everyone's gotten a hold of it and the literature's really started to develop and more and more blocks and different techniques have been developed. So a, a couple that... I can think of our, our rector spinae plane and, and quadratus laborum blocks um, are just two examples of trunk blocks that a lot of people are familiar with, uh, with transverse abdominis plane or tab blocks. And like those have been used for, you know, many years for, uh, you know, either C-sections or low abdominal surgery. And so some of these, these newer blocks are alternatives to tap blocks that are showing the advantage of longer duration of analgesia and also increased dermatome coverage. So to be able to inject in one spot and get farther spread of local anesthetic than than you'd get with a tap block. ESP blocks and the rector spinal plane blocks have advantage of being used for chest wall surgery, so breast surgery, kind of been referred to as like an indirect paravertebral block. But the advantage now is with ultrasound, um, QL blocks really wouldn't be possible without the advent of ultrasound. Um, So they're really 
ultrasound guided technique solely. And these like ESP blocks are just safer. Their advantage of being farther away from the, the longer the plural when injecting. And so the nice thing with all these different techniques is compared to just being able to do an epidural in the past for a thoracic surgery or abdominal surgery that we're able to offer some other techniques that um, don't have all the downsides that epidurals could have as far as, you know, being able to, you know, have to be hooked up to a pump um, so you can mobilize faster, maybe don't have a fully easier, easier to perform other decreased complications, hypotension, motor block, catheter failure. So there's just a, a lot of advantages um, with some of these newer blocks and with the widespread use of ultrasound, we're able to get these blocks out there more so. You know, other other ways that there's just been an emerging trend in regional anesthesia. So there's been extensive cadaver dissection studies have been done that have showed us what the most important nerves are for analgesia and various nerves of the body, like the shoulder, the knee, um, adductor canal blocks is something a lot of us are familiar with now. And those have become more widespread especially for ambulatory knee surgery is uh, the femoral blocks, which typically had quadricep weakness. Now we can use other blocks that um, avoid a lot of those complications. And these cadaver studies have helped lead us to where the ideal location is to do these blocks and what's going to give us the most effective block. And um, one more example of just brachial plexus blocks. Typically we're done with, you know, higher volumes, 30, 40 mLs of local anesthetic dumped into the neck. Well, now with ultrasound, we're able to do a lot more targeted techniques, which use, allows us to use smaller volumes of local anesthetic and, and therefore safer volumes of local anesthetic. Yeah, that's great. Tell us a little bit about liposomal bupivacaine, Expiril. Where is that on the scene? How's that being utilized right now? I understand it's pretty restricted in terms of its FDA approval for blocks, but uh, how have you seen folks utilizing this medication? And, you know, there's obviously a lot of hype from it being, uh, you know, from the company that produces it, but uh, speak a little bit to its validity in terms of um, its efficacy and whether or not it's worth um, widespread integration into other blocks. Yeah. So Expirel was originally developed and it was FDA approved for local infiltration. This was back in 2011. So now it's in, back in 2018, they gave it FDA approval for just interscaling blocks. And so what are these, these liposomes are these microscopic spheres and they contain this aqueous core surrounded by this phospholipid bilayer. And the idea that what happens here is this encapsulated bupivacaine is slowly released at that site over three to four days. And so while your single injection bupivacaine, say half percent bupivacaine might last somewhere in that 12 to 24 hour range, the idea is that Expiral can provide that longer duration of analgesia over, you know, three to four days and extend, extend that as the patient goes home or spends that time in the hospital. And Unfortunately, at this point, the literature is not overwhelming on the efficacy of Expirel, um, but I, I do know many CRNAs that have used it and had great results with it. A lot of the studies that were published in favor of it were from the company itself, um, and so I think we're just we still need some better studies that come out and compare it to um, either local anesthetics with adjuncts like Decadron added or comparing Expirel to catheters, uh, and I think. From what I've heard in, in, in talking to people that have used Expiril and had varying results with it, that there might be something to do with the injection technique that it matters. So it, it's been explained to me that Expiril, it just sits in the spot. It, it doesn't 
travel, but it knows what to do, which is just slowly release that bupivacaine. So we have to put it in the right spot. And it might yeah. be that that expiral has to be deposited around the nerve versus just a, a single injection of, of leaving that needle in one spot. And so I think we'll hopefully as studies come out on what's the best technique. And like I said, I'd like to see it compared with catheters. I'm a big proponent of catheters. And the advantage of catheters, while there's a little bit more time consuming uh, to put in and take a little bit more technical skill, that if you have a properly placed catheter, that that analgesia lasts as long as that local anesthetics flowing to the nerves, right? Which is just dependent on how big that ball is. So you can get pumps that you know, have 750 mLs of volume and you control the rate at, you know, four or five, um, six mLs or more an hour. And so catheters do have costs there, a bit more time consuming to place, but I've had really good results with it. Uh, and the other thing with Expirel, it's a very expensive drug, um, you know, anywhere from 150 to 300 plus dollars, depending on the size of the vial. And so that's somewhat been a barrier to getting it out more into practice. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about catheters. When I trained, you know, Expiro was not out at that point. And uh, some of the CRNA only groups that I was working with uh, were using catheters quite a bit to send patients home on. There's a lot to do with in terms of like patient selection and appropriateness though. So can you speak a little bit to the efficacy of catheter use in terms of selecting the right patients and what kind of maybe blocks work best with catheters that you're going to leave in for a few days. Yeah. What, what I find myself putting catheters in is mainly for orthopedic surgery. Um, also if it's a, a bigger general surgery case or an ESP catheter for rib fractures. Um, but yeah, we routinely send, um, either like upper extremity ortho surgery, like if you have an elbow fracture, I'll put an in, infraclavicular catheter. A lot of times, uh, all our shoulders, they receive interscaling, catheters and, and they'll go home with those and so there's sometimes just logistics of you know making sure that the patient and their family are, are comfortable with the pump and knowing what it's about you have to have the discharge instructions all there because they remove these catheters at home um, so everyone just needs to be educated you have to be able to you kind of when you put this in you own it so if you put that in you have to have someone that's available to answer calls for me anesthesia so there's a little bit more to it than just doing a, a one-time injection, sending that patient home. But I think it's rewarding because you see that analgesia go from that 12 or 24 hours out to, you know, two, three, four days, depending on how long you run that pump for at what rate, what the volume is. So there's, uh, it's a way to just add some value to what you're providing by, by doing these nerve blocks and, and extending that analgesia. And will you talk a little bit about um, the communication that it requires to run a successful block program in terms of the anesthesia team and the surgeons and, and getting surgeons on board with being able to place peripheral nerve catheters and blocks, especially I think in, in acute care orthopedic trauma. Maybe speak a little bit about that because I know that a lot of orthopedic surgeons are hesitant in terms of you know, masking compartment syndrome, or they're worried about having to manage the patient's pain postoperatively. So what do you think goes into, you know, creating a successful regional anesthesia program in terms of the communication with the surgeons? You have to have the surgeons on board. So I always say it's, it's about creating a, a culture of regional anesthesia. You have to educate if you need to provide the literature to the surgeons to, uh, to show them the benefits. Uh, big thing with catheters specifically is 
you know, if you're doing a shoulder scope or you're doing a total knee and you have an adductor canal catheter in, right, you roll that patient back and, and, and that catheter is going to be somewhat close to where the surgical site is. Now, if you carefully drape it, if you're careful with putting it in and, and draping it out, um, it will be in the way, but you know how surgeons are, especially orthopedic surgeons. And um, so sometimes it's just that, you know, oh, you got something in, in my neck of the woods up here. So a lot of it's just education, explaining why we're doing this and providing them any um, literature that needs. So you talked about compartment syndrome. Um, there really hasn't been good evidence out there that regional anesthesia blocks compartment syndrome. And there's actually been, um, when we talk about catheters, that by running a, a dilute infusion of local anesthetic, like 0.2% ropivacaine or 8% bupivacaine, um, that we're potentially able versus just doing an opioid technique where opioids might cause the patient to be um, sleeping, sedated, not be able to report that ischemic pain that they're having, that catheters um, will allow that patient to be more awake and alert. And what it's shown is that ischemic pain, which is quite complex from compartment syndrome, that that will break through whatever slight sensory loss there is from, uh, from that local anesthetic or that catheter technique. And so there's actually been some things that I've advocated that it could be a protective technique um, to use regional anesthesia with a catheter versus um, just using narcotics and other medications. Yeah, that's such a good point. Uh, that's a really good word for folks to think about and, and to take into their conversations with surgeons. So thanks for sharing that. I think that many CRNAs would love the opportunity to do more regional anesthesia in their practice, but they're constrained by anesthesia groups or care team models that restrict CRNA practice. So, you know, I know that each group in hospital is different, but would, do you have any tips for CRNAs that would be in that kind of position? What I've seen is that some facilities are just militant, not allowing CRNAs to do regional anesthesia, right? It doesn't matter what knowledge you have, where you came from. Unfortunately, those are those certain centers that are like that. Maybe they have a residency program and so their residents are getting all the the blocks and they just aren't going to let CRNAs do it. But I, but I know other CRNAs that have had success with, you know, either coming in early or, or shadowing someone and, and showing an interest and maybe they help out with the block. They eventually get to do it. And, and so sometimes you just have to take what you can get, right? You watch, you learn if possible. If someone gives you the opportunity to perform some of the blocks, great. Uh, and the best way I think that you can, become familiar with doing blocks and becoming comfortable with ultrasound, which is a pretty steep learning curve, is is learn the anatomy, scan on yourself, scan coworkers, and watch others perform blocks. And that's the best way that you can be ready to go. And if you get an opportunity to, to do a block, um, then you're not just looking at the screen and just have this blank look on your face. So it's you can learn a lot by just getting the ultrasound machine and playing around a little bit after hours with it and seeing what the nerve and anatomy look like. Yeah, I think that's great advice in terms of being proactive in your own education and preparedness if you want to move in that direction, for sure. Um, and I would assume that you would say that these, you know, weekend CRNA run courses in regional anesthesia could be really helpful for CRNAs who are looking to uh, enhance their skills or refresh their skills that they learn from school. Definitely. So they, they'll give you a good starter foundation. The biggest thing is, you know, having some of the didactic, um, going through the blocks, the anatomy, just as a refresher, and then the ability to handle the ultrasound probe, you know, under non-judgmental eye of an experienced CRNA, because it's the, the hardest thing is 
is really getting used to the ultrasound and, and seeing what the anatomy looks like on the screen and being able to pick it out. And that just comes from doing blocks over and over and over again. And then it becomes like, just like putting an IV in. Um, so it's really just a start. Um, ideally you have someone at your facility that can help you with, um, tips and, and looking at the screen with you and, and showing you little techniques of, of doing in-plane needling. Um, so the, the hands-on are a great place to start. You really need something to go back to though and work with at your facility. Um, but there's really a lot of good online content out there. Um, you know, videos that people have putting together on YouTube or Nysora where you can do a pretty good self-study of anatomy, watch ultrasound techniques, um, read the literature. Um, there's even a, um, a, a fellow CRNA and friend of mine, John Wilton, um, started a, a Facebook group called Ultrasound Guided Regional Anesthesia, MSK and POCUS, which is musculoskeletal and point-of-care ultrasound. But a lot of good articles and chatter on there about um, treating different conditions, different blocks, the new literature that we were talking about with the cadaver studies, people post things, have that discussion. And so it, nowadays with all the online uh, information out there, you can really do a good job of educating yourself and then, like I said, putting it to use. And if you've got a colleague or somewhere that can kind of be a mentor to you and start small and work up, you know, start with a basic block that you feel comfortable with and, and graduate to more advanced techniques as you go along. Yeah, I would assume that that advice would also be really applicable to CRNAs who maybe have been in a practice for years where they're not doing regional anesthesia, but they want to move into um, you know, a phase of their career where they're doing more regional. Is there anything else that you would offer to those kinds of CRNAs who are looking to maybe even make a, a job change or make a career move to be able to incorporate regional anesthesia into their professional lives? Is there anywhere else that they could get experience or advice that you would have for them? Yeah, I think just like my experience of coming out of school of being in a, a job with CRNAs that were willing to help train me and get me up to speed. I mean, that's the best way you're going to, you're going to learn it, you know, unless like you said, you get a really good experience in school um, on the job training is, is how it's going to come. And there's jobs out there where uh, if you go to a, a regional anesthesia centric practice, um, they'll bring you in, they'll, they'll get you up to speed with, um, making sure that you know how to do the blocks and the education that you need. So there's practices out there, you know, just in general, regional anesthesia is so underutilized, even in, in large academic centers where you'd think that every shoulder scope was getting a, a brachial plexus block. It's not necessarily the case. And sometimes there's different reasons why, but you know, there's small hospitals that do way more regional anesthesia on average than, than your larger centers do like on a per patient basis. And so there's jobs out there and that's really on the job training is the best way I think to get experience. If you're really interested, you just let people know what you're looking for and that you're willing to learn and, and do everything you can. Yeah, that's awesome. And I would agree with you. I was uh, shocked coming out of school to, to realize that regional anesthesia was um, being underutilized in many places around the nation that, uh, you know, that many folks are, kind of on, um, I think, I think the trend is starting to shift, you know, but when I came out of school a number of years ago, it seemed like an opioid based anesthetic was, was the plan. That's the best that we can offer. So, which leads into my next question, where do you think regional anesthesia fits into that swing that we've seen in the field of anesthesia globally in terms of moving towards opioid free anesthesia? So I, I mean, in my personal preference, I think it's really the, the cornerstone, um, because ultimately 
when we're doing anesthesia and whatever we're using for analgesia, right, we're just trying to blunt those, the nociception, those signals from getting from the site of action to the spinal cord and up to the brain, right, where, where pain is perceived. And so regional anesthesia is, you know, there's, you know, even our, our non-opioid agents, right, everything that we give IV or oral, there's all different side effects that can go along with it. But regional anesthesia, we have the ability to just inject local anesthetic, which outside of giving way too much and ending up with a local anesthetic systemic toxicity scenario, um, we're able to do the best job we can to kind of cut those signals um, so I really look at it as in, in my practice is, a, is, a, is the cornerstone of doing everything I can to, to limit opioids. Yeah, that's incredible. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think if folks want to have a robust program where you're limiting opioids or avoiding opioids, regional anesthesia has got to be a, you know, a cornerstone of that and, and a big piece of that program. Well, Shane, anything else that you want to say about the role of uh, regional anesthesia in terms of improving patient outcomes or minimizing the use of opioids? Yeah, so I, I feel like with regional anesthesia is, you know, not only by doing a, a peripheral nerve block or whatever it may be, we're able to control that patient's pain during surgery and around the time of surgery, but we're able to, ex- to extend it in the post-op period. And that's where these advantages of catheters or Expiral, where you know, even if we're doing an opioid-free or opioid-sparing anesthetic in the operating room, that that patient might require some opioids after surgery. Um, and by doing a regional anesthesia, we're maybe able to drag that period out where that patient's not needing to take um, opioids or maybe a very small amount for those two, three, four, five days after surgery. And so that's the big advantages I see with, with regional anesthesia is not only decreasing the intraoperative um, opioid or even other medications that we would use to blunt the sympathetic response that it can have side effects and make people sedated. Um, but we're able to to extend that analgesia way out into the post-op area where maybe that patient doesn't even need to take opioids after their surgery. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. I think it's a very powerful tool. And as you said, it's underutilized. Shane, I know that blocks are really important part of anesthesia training for SRNAs and that in any program you go to is going to give you, you know, a basic foundation in regional anesthesia. But for those folks who may even be before their anesthesia training and they're listening to this podcast and they're trying to evaluate where to go or if they're in their program right now, what advice would you give to SRNAs who are looking to try to graduate with as much regional anesthesia experience as possible? Well, I found from my experience and in, in talking with other, um, CRNAs that that host students is is that most of the sites where you're going to get the good hands-on regional experiences mainly the CRNA independent sites and a lot of those are can be smaller away rotations from maybe your larger academic base where your programs at and it involves some traveling some time away from your family um, can be an inconvenient obviously, to, to live away from home. Um, but some of these sites will give you um, not only a regional anesthesia, but just critical thinking and realize that, you know, as a CRNA, it's an independent practice that a lot of times you're the only one around there in the middle of the night and, and just further expand your skill set to go along with the, the larger cases that you'll do at the academic center. So everything will make you a, um, a well-rounded practitioner, but just being willing as you go into school to travel to those sites that are maybe not as desirable place to be away from family that, that will give you 
some of those independent CRNA experiences. Yeah, and to really look for those opportunities when you're on those clinical rotations to maximize those chances to make a good impression, uh, create a good clinical rotation for yourself while you're there. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I know this is kind of like a 10,000 foot view of regional anesthesia and the trends and some tips and advice for CRNAs and SRNAs, but maybe in the future in the podcast, we can dive into, you know, more specific topics and more in depth, but is there anything else that you'd like to sound off on in terms of kind of a a broad look at regional anesthesia in the field of, uh, of anesthesia in general right now before we head out? Yeah, I, I think regional anesthesia is is here to stay. Uh, the the more CRNAs can be educated on the the different techniques, be comfortable doing it using the ultrasound probe, um, it's going to make you more and more marketable. You can already see all the benefits of having a good regional anesthesia program as far as just the ability to you know get people moving faster, higher patient satisfaction scores, better patient outcomes. Um, you know, ability to rehab quicker. And, and now we're looking at, you know, potentially decreasing that, that chronic post-surgical pain just by, by doing regional anesthesia. And so I think the more you can be willing to, to grow and adapt techniques and look at protocols in your hospital, you can have a lot of, add a lot of value to your patients, but also just to your facility and provide a service that maybe some other anesthesia providers would not be able to. So you're just kind of going above and beyond um, to provide the best patient care that you can to patients. Yeah. And I would echo that from the CRNAs that I know who have gone out and started their own practices whether that's, you know, taking over contracts for outpatient surgery centers or hospitals for anesthesia services, uh, or in fact, creating their own freestanding pain management clinics, the more value that you're able to bring as a full service provider and offering a full scope of regional anesthesia services, the more likely you are to win those contracts and grow your business. Exactly. And sometimes even we're talking specifically about regional anesthesia, but just the ability to to add value by using the ultrasound machine to go in and do central lines, arterial lines, or, or not even regional anesthesia and ultrasound, but to, to go in and do intubations and educate nurses on different techniques and what you're doing, just being willing. And I, I noticed this in the small hospital environment that um, when you've only got a couple anesthesia providers around and they, they tend to lean on you a lot. And, but just being willing to do that adds so much value. And so that's where just regional anesthesia, ultrasound use really fits into it and allows you to provide uh, more of a full service than just doing anesthesia in the OR. Oh, Shane, that's such a good word, man. Well, thank you again for joining us uh, on the podcast. I really appreciate hearing from you and your insights from the pain management fellowship and the board certification and that all the way through just the trends and techniques on regional anesthesia that's going on right now. So thanks so much for sharing your expertise today. Thanks for having me, John. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.